0: Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. Just as a reminder for all of our episodes, while we love interviewing people who fall far from the norm and interrogating radical ideas, we do not
1: necessarily endorse the views of our guests on this show. In this episode, we interview Dr. Timnit Gebru, a research scientist at Google on the Ethical AI team and co-founder of Black in AI. Timnit previously did her postdoc at Microsoft Research for the FATE, which stands for Fairness, Transparency, Accountability, and Ethics in AI group, where she studied algorithmic bias and the ethical implications underlying any data mining project. She received her PhD from the Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, studying computer vision under Dr. Fei-Fei Li. In this interview, we explore the topic of representation and diversity in the field of technology, artificial intelligence, and machine learning, especially as it relates to the personal experiences of Timnit Gebru, and we also explore... Timnit's motivation as a researcher, and so what led her to eventually co-found the Black in AI community. I'm
0: very excited and very humbled that we were able to have this conversation and that we're able to present this conversation to folks today, um, especially with what is uh, going on in the world as we release this episode. And we recorded this episode a few weeks ago. um, And so that was before George Floyd uh, was murdered by a police officer. It was before uh, protests started springing up around the country to address and to protest systematic oppression and racism in our country. Um, and right now, as we're, we're releasing this uh, episode, there is just so much pain and fear and, and anger um, and, and righteous anger out in the world um, about these just... Deep-seated systems of of oppression and um, violence that have been committed against black bodies and and black folks and people of color for hundreds of years, um, and so uh, Jess and I released this episode with with a lot of humility. And as uh, two white folks, Jess and I didn't want to center our voices in framing the discussion of uh, what is going on in the country right now. And so we actually reached back out to Timnit um, a few weeks after the interview, as we got prepared to release this episode uh, to see if Timnit would be willing to share some words from her perspective. So the following are words that Timnit wanted to share with all of you and following those words, we will go straight into the interview with Timnit Gebru. Hi
2: everybody. I uh, got a message from the great people of this podcast asking if I wanted to preface this podcast with a message given um, the kind of times we're in right now, at least in the U.S. And actually, I want to, you know, I am an immigrant um, to the U.S. um, And I, before coming to the U.S., I did face you know, ethnic-based discrimination, of course. But I found that the racism in the U.S. is something just so deep and just really, really deep and like anything else I've ever seen before. And probably, you know, other countries like South Africa and Brazil who have similar racial dynamics probably might feel the same. And a lot of times when you talk about this kind of stuff, um, people outside of the U.S., like many times Europeans, for example, different European countries would kind of want to tell you, you know, um, but isn't it, is it the U.S. so terrible? Like, we don't have that, you know, or, or, oh, man, it's so bad. I'm Things are better here. You know, you don't know whether things are better there or not, because white, white supremacy is basically a global phenomenon. The only difference is really how it manifests itself in different places and, and the amount of dialogue and discourse and um, conflict that exists because of it. If you have people who are completely powerless, uh, then there will not be protests regarding white supremacy because they just don't have a way to speak up Um, If you have people who have not thought about the history and and its connections and its roots to many different things, then obviously you won't have this discourse. So don't think that this is just an American thing. Uh, This is a global phenomenon. Um, Anytime I see Eritreans um, trying to get away and sinking uh, boats, um and the way they're treated as refugees in italy for example let's not forget italy colonized eritrea i remember that white supremacy is a global phenomenon um and of course anytime an unarmed person of color i would say a black person is killed by police um we, we remember that um, police brutality is not also a, a U.S. specific thing. So even though these things are happening in the U.S. right now, and it might seem that talking about them might be U.S. centric, this is really a global phenomenon. Um, I, I, I thought I had to say this because I just heard some people um, saying that, you know, coming out and saying Black Lives Matter or something like that will make their organization or their institution that that is supposed to be international seem like it's uh, biased towards the US or something like that. No, uh, this is a global phenomenon. It's just that we're witnessing it in the US right now. And of course, uh, remember that um, (laughs) we should respond to things that are happening in our context in a specific way. So we are responding to what's happening in the US right now. Um, in this way. Uh, But it's not only a US specific problem. Um, I think, I don't know what else to say. It's just so exhausting. Um, I think Reddit said, we're not going to solve racism this month. And that's true. Um, This is just a long haul. Um, This is a marathon. And it's not going to be solved today. It's not going to be solved tomorrow. I'm happy to see that. It just seems that tech companies, for example, just can't, they've been forced to not ignore it right now. Um, I'm happy to see the virtual walkout at Facebook and people are talking about it at Google and I know we should demand more, but I'm just thinking about like 2012, you know, just saying Black Lives Matter was not acceptable you were considered uh someone who is an agitator conflict you know someone is looking for conflict just for saying the words black lives matter or even having a t-shirt or something like that and i don't know maybe this is progress maybe it just it it feels hard to say that um it doesn't feel like progress it just feels like nothing has changed in some ways i feel like this is the same scene out of the late 60s uh, where I don't know, the same brutality is happening and the same, uh, the media is re- reacting in the same exact way against protesters. Um, and, uh, you know, people care more about property, it seems, than black lives. But I don't know, maybe maybe the fact that um, people can't hide from it might be progress. Who knows? It's really difficult to see anything as progress right now, but I'm just trying to think that maybe we are making progress it it i don't know feels like doesn't feel like it though um so yeah i just wanted to send a message uh of to everyone who is uh just must be feeling terrible right now and to anybody to everybody else you know this is who is not in the u.s this is not just a u.s thing um, many of these events happen, you know, in the sixties, people in fighting for independence would, were very much, uh, connected with people in the civil rights movement. Right. And the, the, all of these movements, many times they're global. Um, and so just because we're saying black lives matter, I don't think that this is just like us specific thing. Um, I, I don't know why I'm so focused on this, but just really struck a nerve for me. Um, so I think that's all I have to say for now and um, take care of yourselves and thank you for listening. Okay, bye.
0: We are so excited to be on the line today with Dr. Timnit Gebru. Timnet, how are you doing today?
2: I'm good. How are you?
0: Doing okay. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as we begin this interview, uh, we wanted to start with uh, almost a million dollar question, which is what motivates you to do this work that you do? And we were wondering if you could paint a picture of uh, your journey up to this point.
2: Hmm, you know, sometimes motivation is hard to come by. <laughs> so um, there are days that are like really hard to get motivated. And so anything that gets me motivated, when I am motivated, it's it's good feeling actually. Even you know, like even when I'm anxious or things like this, like being completely demotivated is one of the, I don't know, feel and feeling empty is 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 one of the things that I, I don't like feeling that way. Um, I did. I, I had days where I felt like that uh, many times, um, but so. I think what motivates me is I I think like sometimes when I see something that I think is clearly wrong, it's hard for me to step away from it. And and like, you know, I'm learning how to step away <laughs> uh, now many times because you can't you can't just try to address everything. Right. But like but I think each email I get from someone who talks about like how my work has, you know, touched something um, in their life, or my work has changed the way they're thinking about it, or inspired them to do something. That's really motivating for me. So um, I think, like, ever since I was a little kid, I um, I, I had a little bit of an activist streak. Um, I wouldn't say, you know, I'm I'm totally one hundred percent activist because, um, many times I feel like um, changing something is about actually the execution, just the day-to-day kind of boring Excel spreadsheet, just calling phones, whatever kind of execution, you know, and, um, there's many times where I've worked with a lot of people where there are a lot of grand ideas and things, you know, but the execution is not there. And the execution is never glamorous. Like it's really never anything to, you know, show off. It's just kind of boring stuff you, you want to do. So um, yeah, when I was a little kid, I remember my mom told me, um, I was like four years old or something like that. And so, you know, I, I grew up in Ethiopia and, um, you know, older people are really, really respected. They just get the first dips on everything, right? Like, you, you know, uh, food or just they and they order you around. And as the youngest, you know, as a little kid, you're always just going to, um, you know, you have to serve them. And so um, and then there was, you know, there was a communist government and they had a, a motto that was like, which means it's an that's an Amharic, which means like the best for for the kids. And so I protested. Like I went to my mom and I was like, you know, we always have these get togethers. And like what happens is that the older people eat first and all the yummy food, like when it gets to me, like some of the great food is gone. <laughs> like I have to, you know, eat the ones, the stuff that's not done, you know? And so, and then you have, there's this motto of, like the best for kids. And I don't think this is true. Cause like, we're not getting the best, we're getting the last, like, you know, and she didn't really take me seriously. She thought it was funny, you know. <laughs> and I demanded to be taken seriously. And then I remember, like in school, um, we like uh, raised some money to build a library or something. This was a long time ago, like middle school or something. And I, I feel I don't remember exactly what happened. I don't know if maybe they didn't use the money for the library or maybe they did something. And I think we decided to have a strike or something like that. And and my mom was supportive, and she was like, you know, don't let them single you out. Like you don't want to be singled out. I was like that. you know, so so I I, I always like I I, I kind of uh, always had the streak a little bit. Um, and one thing I think that that really helped me um, growing up is that I grew up in a very supportive environment. So I. You know, I saw my, my sisters, I was raised basically by a single mom, um, and my sisters were both electrical engineers, um, and I went to an all-girls school. It's interesting, you know, I went to an all-girls Catholic school, and I feel like that school has created some of the most independent women. It's not necessarily something you associate with, you know, with strict kind of disciplinary um, schools like that. But like when I look at a lot of my friends who are women who went to that school, um, very independent. So I I grew up with that kind of um, really supportive environment. And I I never felt like I can't do something because of any of those identities that I had. Um, But I was also, you know, um, I'm Eritrean um, ethnically. And, um, you know, there was always this feeling of being Eritrean, um, like uh, freedom fighters, you know, people fought for independence for 30 years and like this little country and um, so you always hear these stories, right? Like your family, people, your family are involved in these kinds of things. And so you always grow up hearing these, um, stories of freedom fighters and struggles. And I think that also kind of shapes, you know, your attitude and who you are. And so at some point we had to leave the country. Um, and so seeing the, you know, the immigration process. So like we had to leave, I went to Ireland and then I came to the States, um, And, uh, we, you know, later I had political asylum. Then we had, um, we applied for a green card and that took a very long time because of 9 11, you know. Um, and then after coming to the States, you know, I, I, I just, I, uh, experienced so many things. I experienced all sorts of racism, all sorts of sexism. Um, I think one thing I realized is that, you know, one way to understand how, how uh, far we are from equity here is that the story that's told it's so, um, it's really not accurate at all, right? Like as an immigrant, you know, when I was in high school, I basically learned like, oh yeah, there was this thing called slavery and then, you know, blah, 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 like Native Americans, trail of tears. And then, you know, it's fine now, that's it. There was this bad guy called Malcolm X, good guy called Malcolm Luther King, and that's all you learn, right? And I, and after all the racism I experienced in high school, I was just like, this cannot be like, this can't be the only thing. This is not, this cannot be the end of it. So then I started reading up and I took a class um, at Stanford and um, in, you know, like civil rights in the modern era and 20th century. And I was just literally, I was shocked. Like I didn't, we didn't learn about lynchings. We didn't learn about none of, you know, we didn't learn about anything in high school. And so how can you move forward when the country is completely in denial uh, with what, you know, its own history, right? Whereas um on the other hand, I spent my entire high school learning about Nazi Germany. And, you know, we're in the US, but we analyze Nazi Germany and like who's responsible and all that stuff. So anyway, so all all to say that all of these things, I think, of shaped my thinking and um and I was always you know I was always into math and physics and so I was always kind of um interested in engineering and the sciences and I always thought of anything uh different anything else that I do as separate from that like I never kind of connected the two I actually liked it I thought Okay, great. Here's this technical thing I can do. Like this has nothing to do with you know societal issues and whatever. I can just go do this thing, and then you know when I don't want to worry about societal issues, I'll just do this thing. And then here, here are all these other issues that are going on, and literally until very recently. Um, when I'm reading like people like Ruha that, you know, you, you, you interviewed and when I'm reading the ways in which, you know, engineers um, are many times can be um, part of the problem, um, the ways in which lots of companies were involved in, you know, um, Nazi Germany or like apartheid and things like that. I mean, that's for me, that's pretty recent. Like when I when I started learning about it, um, the way, you know, the way the history of Silicon Valley, right, when I was at Stanford, I mean. I did not learn about, you know, some of the histories of Silicon Valley or how uh, the profit is tied to war or how its development is tied, those kinds of things. You know, we just kind of learned about how I just, I know I was very fascinated by like this place. I thought it was very innovative You know, I wanted to be a part of it. And, um, and so, I mean, even in the last five, six years, I would say like 2012 me and now uh, my thinking is very different. So it makes me wonder like how, how my thinking will be different, like, five years from now or, you know, eight years from now. Anyways, that's a whole kind of rambling uh, uh, to, to kind of give you a little bit of an idea of what kinds of things I think about and what motivates me.
1: Coming from your childhood as an activist kid over in Ethiopia and then to being an engineer in the States and at the university level, I'm wondering if you have a specific memory or a moment maybe where you started to realize that the technical and the social could be connected? And uh, if there's anything in particular that comes to your mind and what pushed you towards that direction?
2: That's interesting, actually. Um, So I was always, um, you know, the way in which I connected them always was how um, there was no representation in in the workforce so there were no black people there were not not many women and so that was the way in which i connected it what happened and so i was actually very worried about being kind of bucketed into this you know black woman doing things about black women um stuff and i i always actually got very um irritated when people had these studies like Oh, why don't we have more women in engineering? Well, women want to do things that help people and that kind of stuff. And I was just like, I do. Maybe women don't want to work with assholes. Like, and maybe that's just it. Maybe women just want to. You know, maybe women. There are women who just want to do stuff that that's not related to people, just because it's fun. Like, like some other people do. But maybe when they're in those fields, they just can't stand the the environment, and then they leave. You know. And maybe maybe that's what. It is, I don't know so I always kind of um got annoyed with these kinds of bucketings and I wanted to make sure that i you know i did i was known for like my just baseline computer vision whatever things not like uh, my other stuff and the other stuff is just completely separate is is sort of how I wanted to to it to be and i remember like my advisor um I think it's like in 2015 or something like that or 2016. 2015 I think she was like you know um you know you have like there's two things you care about you care about social justice and care about all this stuff um and then you you know also like are you you work on computer vision and and things like this and your your thesis should combine both of them like I think your thesis should combine both AI and like social justice and that that should be like your direction and it's pretty resistant to it actually um and I was just like you know I didn't say no but I was just like but I don't want to be like the, you know, one person, (laughs) you know, that was kind of what happened. Um, But in the end, it just ended up that way, right? Like, it just ended up being that that was the direction I was taking. Anyways, and now really, I don't really care what exactly (laughs) I'm known for or anything like that, you know, because you'll always feel like you have, you'll have to have something to prove. Um, and at some point, like, who are you trying to prove what to? So it doesn't matter, right? Like you do this thing, and you have to prove this other thing. And you do this other thing after. To... So you know now, I don't really care. Like I'm writing whatever kinds of papers I want to write, which is nice. You know, like I'm collaborating with whoever I want to collaborate with, um, and I I don't care if the paper has math or if it doesn't. You know, um, so that's nice to be. I- I'm actually not happy that I'm in that spot right now. Um, but yeah. But that's kind of how, how it came to be. Mm-hmm.
0: In terms of uh, what you're... Because I saw your face kind of light up when you talked about what you're working on right now. I'm wondering what you're particularly excited about in terms of either your research right now or professionally what you're looking at right now.
2: So it's a, so just right now, um, you know, I, uh, I just came from a meeting. I was many people by my team. So you might know Alex Hannah. Um, Emily Denton, uh, William Isaac, who is uh, at DeepMind, um, but he's the general chair, in fact, um, one of the general chairs next year, and Unso Joe, who I collaborated with um, on, on this paper. She's a historian. Um, she's, I think, um, finishing up her PhD at Stanford. So we were just talking uh, about a project we're working on right now, and it was Unso's idea, and she wants to apply like um, historical uh, some methodology from history to analyze biases in, in data sets. And also so so you know historians learn about um you know analyzing primary sources and things like that. And so that's that's one of the things right now we were discussing. And so that's fun, right? Like to be able to to do that. And I you know and I noticed, I was thinking about like this a lot. Um I noticed this this there is a huge bias in in our community, right? And I think it was Mar Hicks. I don't know if you if you guys follow Mar Hicks. I, I I love uh, yeah, I love them. They're like a historian, a historian of tech. Um, I think it was Mark who was saying that um, each time, you know, they were saying like why the, some of these coding bootcamps and things like that, like if there's no systematic change, these things in their, uh, on, the, on their own that are trying to bring more people of color or more women or whatever uh, won't really do anything because what happens is that the moment something becomes dominated by non-white men, it becomes not, you know, that uh, somehow like it, get, it gets downgraded, right? So that's the history of computer science, right? Like it was a, it was supposed to be like, a, people kind of described it as secretarial thing or whatever, and like they were advertising it as if it was this, you know, um, it was targeted towards women. And then it kind of changed. And now, it and like when it became lucrative, it became a, you know, kind of a man only thing. And so, and so the problem is anytime, you know, something, something changes status, then it becomes like, uh, dominated by the majority. And so, um, uh, so I was thinking like in, in, in my field, for example, there are many cases where you apply a a concept from a different field, like, like, for example, from physics or from, from a different field and you apply the modeling techniques or, or some math, that uh, some kind of understanding uh, and you, you, you apply it to your setting. And that's always something that's welcome. That's always something that, that people kind of accept, except um, the same kind of respect is not afforded to the, the disciplines that are not um, considered technical. And, And what does that even mean? Right? Like, so if you bring ideas from critical race theory, into machine learning, for example, that's not as respected by the machine learning community, right? Because they'll be like, oh, but then where is the technical component? Like, where is the whatever component? Like, why does it, why do you have to see math in there? <laughs> you know, math is a tool just like everything else. So, what we're trying to do is we're trying to advance a particular field. So, why does it matter so much? You know how you're doing it. Because in my opinion, this is gatekeeping, just similar to how you know, like I said, every, something loses status or gains status depending on who in the majority is doing it. Um, and so, in my opinion, this is the way in which you know people are shut out. This is the way, this is kind of a gatekeeping mechanism. So for me, I don't really see the difference if I'm bringing ideas from, for example, from my prior background, analog circuit design um, into machine learning. And the thing that I found most compelling was something as simple as data sheets. Like why that's not math, that's process, you know? So that's really what I think is important. Or if it's history or if it, or it can be like physics, it doesn't matter, right? Like, but you can bring in different components from different, different disciplines. And if it's really advancing the fields, I don't really know why it matters, whether it has some mathematical component to it versus not.
1: Do you think that that fear of not being taken as seriously by the community in technology and in AI and machine learning especially played into um, part of that fear that you had in initially bringing in those like social justice um, ideas and and wants for your research originally when you were back at Stanford?
2: Absolutely. 100%. 100%. I did not want to be, again, like I did not want to be bucketed you know people want to bucket you into different buckets that's one thing i noticed about the u.s um actually i remember i always said this coming um immigrating to the u.s when i was in school um i was never bucketed into either the popular person or the nerdy person or the sporty person or the music person, right? And here, like, in high school, there is, like, these buckets. Like, if you're the nerdy person, you can't be the sporty person. If you're the sporty person, you have to be the jock. If you're the band person, you can't be. I mean, it's so... It, it was... it's That's not how it, how it is when I was growing up, right? Like, there are the quiet people. There are the nerdy people. The nerdy people can be the popular people. Popular people can be whatever. Like, it wasn't like this. You have to fit in this one bucket thing. And so... I, this is exactly why I have to read this book. I were, uh sorting things out um, the uh, effects of classification or something like that. This is, um, or uh, yeah, like Alex Hannah told me to read this book a long time ago and I really want to read it. And um, so when I was, you know, when you're in an environment where you're already the only one, you're already, you're, <laughs> you're already out of place. You, you, your ideas of reality, are already so different from other ide- people's ideas of reality. Um, you always use, you already have to um, like, you know, make sure that everything you say is, is, is like really accurate because someone's going to like challenge you with, with such confidence, you know? And so when you're in an environment like that, what you want to show to people is that you're beating, that you're as good as, as them at their own game, at, at whatever they're doing, Right. Um, but what I realized is like later on, many it's really important for us to be educated about our history and how things came to be that way, right? It's only once I started reading Mars' works and Ruha's works and other people's works where I realized like, well, why do I feel that way? Why am I made to feel that way? And why am I trying to shy away from the things that are truly important? I feel like there needs to be some sort of transformation in our industry, right? Um so why am why am I being made to feel this way? Um, that's when I started. I stopped like caring about it, and I also feel it's important. You know, I, I sort of feel like I've made, um, I've proven myself to a certain extent that like anything more is not necessary. So like in a to a certain extent, like you have to. Uh, I was reading um, Trevor Noah's book, right, Born a Crime, and he he talks about how you know, language is, is, a, is a big tool, right. For, for that can be used in many ways. And so when you speak someone's language, you're, you're, it, they're more likely to listen to you anyways. Right. And so if I want to go to the computer vision community or some, or the machine learning community or whatever, and I want to introduce certain ideas, if I speak their language, it's much more, you know, I'm much more likely I feel to, to, to introduce this language, to, to kind of introduce them into uh, certain other ideas, even interdisciplinary ideas that I'm, I'm interested in. I'm, I would like the machine learning community to to take seriously. But if I don't speak their language and they feel like I am coming from the outside and I'm just you know speaking a different language, or I don't understand this, or I don't understand that, I think it's much harder for people to take me seriously. Right. So even strategically, like even without that fear that you're talking about, even strategically, I think it's important to establish yourself as part of some community so that people take you seriously to a certain extent so that you sh- you tell them, hey, look, like I, I do speak your language, like, you know, and so listen to me, right? Um, if you don't, then it's much harder to kind of, uh, I think send a message, I guess
0: that you want to send. Yeah. It's, um, when you talk about like the high school experience, which was very similar to my high school experience where everyone gets put in a bucket, it sounds very immature. Right. And then you look at what's going on at academia and then also in industry. And it's like,
2: that's what
0: happens. Right? (laughs) Yeah. What's what, you know, the, the why is the question that comes to mind for me, but also, um, while you've been doing, this work, actually, it, could we take a step back about representation for a second, um, for folks that don't really, that aren't aware of the issues of representation, either in the academy or out in industry, um, could you just, uh, give a, a kind of representation 101 about what the issue might be and why it matters?
2: Oh man, it is dire, you know, it was shocking, um, to me. So when I, I went to school at Stanford as an undergrad, and there all, all of these efforts to bring, um, people in this is exactly so I uh, people what a lot of people do at work at Google at Stanford whatever take whichever institution I feel they try to focus on oh you know people are like oh let's get them interested early let's bring them in let's hire let's like get whatever the problem is once you're there there are a lot of people interested there are a lot of people doing something but people are not taking this inclusion seriously of the DEI part diversity equity and inclusion so at Stanford, too, what happens is a lot of people are brought in. So I think at the undergrad level, I felt, you know, I, I saw a representation, not necessarily in electrical engineering, though, not in my field. Um, even people who started in, they would drop off. And by the very end, you had like no black, almost no black people. In grad school, zero, zero, right? Like I saw nobody and And, um, and in, in these conferences, literally, like I, I always talk about this. Um, I counted at some point, like five out of 5,500, right. And this is an international conference globally, you know, globally white people are a minority, right. You should see maybe like 10% white, like 20% black, like, you know what I mean? Maybe 60%, you know, uh, from the Asian continent, like, this this is the global representation of human beings, right? And so, and I saw like five black people out of fifty five hundred at the same time. There was this was in twenty sixteen, right? Um, this was and at the same time there was all of this hype about AI, all of this. But at the same time, that was the first time I read um this ProPublica article talking about crime recidivism and how um you know algorithms were being used to predict uh who is, or to supposedly predict who is likely to commit a crime again etc etc it's being used um uh, this information is being used by judges to post bail um, amounts and for, uh, for in sentencing and i did not know that it was the first time I, I i i heard um i i saw this article at the same time i was aware of joy's work and we had already started collaborating um And so I, that's kind of where I was starting to put two and two together. I'm like, oh my God, like there's no representation, but at the same time, this is what's happening, you know, with, with algorithms that are being used, um, in, in manners that are not benefiting many people in the world. Um, right. And so, and so that's sort of, um, that was kind of how I felt. And, and, and I had experiences, for example, trying to talk to people, um, around me about police violence. Or like even just telling them my own stories, and they don't want to believe it. You know, they don't. People. I remember people telling me like, "Oh, things must have been easy for me because you know I'm both black and a woman." You know, this is the kind of stuff people telling me in grad school, and I'm just like, "Are you kidding me? Where you also, you know?" And and so and so seeing that this was my experience, and this is the group of people who are gonna be the heads of companies, the heads of the AI departments, the heads of this, the you know, the professors of the future or whatever. And designing all of these algorithms. Um, and, and their reality is so different. I mean, people's reality in this country is so different anyways, because as like someone coming from a different country will will not know anything about the history of, of oppression in, in the US, right? Um, and even if you grow up here, you'll have a completely different reality. Like you're completely, you don't learn about it. And so on top of that, there's no representation. And so this is the group of people designing that, you know, technology of the future. Um, so it's, and, and so it's, it's not just about, (coughs) excuse me, I think representation is not just about seeing someone else who looks like you, right? It's not just about the look, right? It's, it's also like the reality, the lived experience that you have. So many times when people bring in uh, people from underrepresented groups, I feel like they just want, they want the look, they want a black face or a black female face. And, and then you just, think the same way as everybody else, and do the same thing as everybody else. You just happen to be like a black female face. But that is not representation. That's not inclusion, right? If you're a black female face that is advancing the same kind of um, oppressive system that exists right now, that's, in my opinion, that's not representation, um, right? And so I feel like each time I speak up, actually, you know, people always have issues with kind of the way I say something or whatever we call it hashtag communication difficulties there's always community it's like I'm like I don't have communication difficulties I'm just communicating difficult things that you don't want to hear right and so if you don't allow people um, from underrepresented groups to talk about marginalization like what does that mean that's not representation in my opinion right so I mean I can go on forever regarding representation. But yeah, so so this is why so I co-founded Black and AI with my colleague Reddit beba and I mean Black and AI um I think it's I I I think a lot of people have told me how it has helped them um kind of feel less isolated. Um but it has it has also taken so much of my time, you know? Um so much of my time um starting in 2016, 2015. Um. So one person said, you know, people don't understand how much time—not just physical time, just time to do all the groundwork that is necessary to do—that most people wouldn't do. Um. But like physical energy, time, but like also mental energy, you know, that it takes to do this kind of uh stuff and still keep up with the other things you have to do because you can't let those things slip either. Um. But anyways, yeah, that's that's my one-on-one on representation. This is something I can talk about for like a very, very long time.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, the, the community that you co-founded, Black in AI, uh, I, would you call it a community or a group? Or how would you label the...
2: Um, I would, yeah, I think it's it's a group. It's like maybe it's a community is a good way to put it. Um, so we have, um, we, we, we are, we, the first thing we wanted to do was like, who is out there? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, let's just know who is out there. The second thing we wanted to do is provide kind of visibility for people. So there are a lot of people, a lot of great people out there, but, you know, they don't get invited to give keynotes or they're not recruited or whatever. They don't, maybe they don't get funding for their startups. So like, how can we amplify their voices and, and get them? So we have a public facing Facebook and Twitter account that just kind of, you know, uh, just like posts, you know, things that are happening by people in black and AI, right? Like, either papers they wrote or interviews they had or like blog posts they wrote or something like this. Um, and then we we also have a workshop. That's the, our biggest thing um, is to, so, you know, to, to bring people to these conferences because so many things happen at these conferences. Many decisions are made at these conferences, right? Like people informally kind of network uh, and then they invite them to some other stuff. They collaborate together, they get funding for something. You know, and if you're left out of these conversations, these informal conversations it's very difficult to uh, to get any any sort of resources or collaborators. Um, And also, I I, there's also people who met there like and who went off on their own and started their own um, uh, kind of thing. So, for example, what I what I find really funny is that a lot of um, the people I met from Ethiopia, they met at Black AI, right? They are all living in Ethiopia. They met at Black in AI in like the US at some point at the Black AI workshop. And then they went off and like together, they um organized like the first AI conference in Ethiopia. They organized like uh, in so that deep learning in Daba X. So uh, deep learning in Daba is like uh, uh, another organization that I really like. And they, they you know, they have summer school. um and, you know, they rotate in like different African countries. Last year was in, Nairobi, well, now it's, I think, I guess, virtual. Um, But, you know, so it's it's basically for the, for people of uh, African descent everywhere, right? Like, so people in the Black Diaspora, like everywhere in the world, right? Um, And so it's really great to see people kind of, oh, and then people, uh, the online community, uh, people are like, uh, working together and collaborating and writing papers, um, so it's it's really cool to to see people kind of meeting each other and collaborating together. And and I think what we're what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a, a space where people can um, thrive, right? Like so, give them more visibility. Hopefully, give them more resources um, for for things that they're doing. Um, provide support um, and kind of ne- a network. I mean, stuff, things are not about meritocracy, things are about networks, actually. And so when people have a network um, of people who support them and who amplify their voices, I think that's when they succeed. So that's one of the things we're trying to, to have here.
1: Yeah, and you've given us a lot of the motivation, it seems, for why this is important and what um, caused you to want to create this community and then the what the community is and how it's helping people. And I'm really curious what the experience has been like and the really the response from the AI community at these conferences, but also just in general and the response from the people who have joined the community. What has What has the experience been like for you as a co-founder?
2: I honestly, I think a lot has happened that I didn't um, anticipate. And so, um, like I know, for example, all of these other organizations started, right? Disabilities in AI, Latinx in AI, um, what else? I mean, I, I, I think there might be more, but but like these organizations did not exist before. Um, and 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 now they exist um, after a uh, queer and AI. How can I forget queer and AI? Yeah, and so queer and AI disabilities and AI Latinx and AI. All of them were not around before, and now they are, which is great, right? And a lot of times, what happens is that all of us can sort of talk about advocacy together, right? So for underrepresented groups, so if we can band together to um, to then like advocate for 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 each of, for things that are good for all of us. Um, right. And so I think that's been good. So one example is I remember, you know, Deb, uh, Deborah Raji, who's like a superstar now, you might, you might know her, or you might have interviewed her. Um, so for example, she, she wrote all sorts of great papers, but she wrote, um, her and Joy wrote a follow up paper to Gender Shades, that showed that um, Amazon's recognition that they still sell to law enforcement has a similar type of um, bias, right, similar error, uh, disparities and error rates uh, by, you know, among, for example, uh, darker skinned women and lighter skinned men, you know, so the thing that's, we showed in gender shades, and they tried to shut down this, you know, they tried to shut them down. They were like VP after VP was going after her in joy. Um, and, and, you know, Deb told me that she, by the time she came to the first black nail workshop, she was ready to leave the tech industry. Um, you know, and she was just, she was feeling isolated and was kind of ready to leave the tech industry. Right. And so for me, that's, that's really what it's all about. Right. It's so research is not just about. So if you are interested in advancing a particular field, there are many ways that that can happen, that can be done. One is you yourself doing something, but the better way is having a multiplier effect where a lot of other people are doing something who wouldn't otherwise do this thing. And it's really important for people like Deb to be involved in this research because there are very few people who will take the kinds of risks that people who care about their community take, right? Like it's not just um, writing a paper for Deb, it was also kind of making sure that something her community is not harmed. And so it's for me, it's really important to make sure that people like that still stay in the field and get the support that they need. Um, so, So I think, so I, I mean, when I look back and see many of the things we've done, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the organization, but I always see the things we have to do. <laughs> like, it's always like the thing for me and black men is always like I have this like to do list right now of so much to do list. Like, you know, send email to this person, finalize goals and stuff, create an application for this thing, <laughs> like figure out what to do for this other thing. You know, this is this is my list of to do's for black men. And I always, I just, you know, there's always a never ending, like this huge list of to do's. Um, and I always think about like all the stuff in which which we can improve, right? And so I think there's a lot we can do. Um, there's a lot we can do with our online community uh, management. I think that's one thing we wanna focus on this year. And um, just kind of, because of course, like uh, by necessity as well, um, make sure that our online community is strong and people and kind of encourage people to find each other and have collaborations. Um, but there have been many, many people like writing, writing us about, you know, how like they get, got a particular internship because of us, or they got a scholarship to go to some summer school, or they got this job, or they got this PhD, they got into a PhD um, program or postdoc or whatever. And, and that feels good, right? Like that feels really good.
0: It's, uh, this reminds me of something that you said earlier uh, that I want to follow up with uh, when you were talking about the, um, we'll call it the denial of kind of the American uh, milieu about slavery, about difficult conversations in general, about racism, you know, the list goes on. Um, and you said, you know, how can we move forward when the country is in denial? Um, and my experience has been that, especially when regards to representation, the tech industry is still, it's, it's getting there, but it's still in denial in certain ways. Um, and I'm wondering if you have thoughts about you know how, and maybe black and AI is is a is a way that you're beginning this conversation. Um, but how do we move forward as an industry when we're still so stuck in denial? You know,
2: I think that the the combination of denial and talking about diversity can be can be dangerous sometimes because if you understand the history of this country and you understand just how oppressed certain groups of people have been. Then you talk about diversity, you can put it in a particular context. But if you don't understand the history of this country and what is going on, and then you just talk about diversity, then diversity just becomes about variety, right? It's like, oh, we need X number of this people, X number of that people, and then that's diversity. And then the, the whole conversation, in my opinion, just gets derailed, right? Like, so, so I, I mean, for me, I, I, I specific, when we were talking about black and AI, for example, and uh, we were talking about, should we call it like something more broad, like underrepresented people in AI or whatever? And we decided finally, no, we, let's call it black in AI because there is enough to, to <laughs> we want it to be focused. You know, um, there are things that are, speci- that are happening that are specific to black people in AI, right? And if we just called it like, let's say underrepresented people in AI or whatever, that specific thing would not be addressed. And I think a similar, I see a similar thing happening with diversity, right? Like the conversation just becomes about, all groups of people, all types of representation, right? But there are specific things that are happening with specific groups that you have to look at historically, that historical context is really important, right? And so for example, when you talk about you know, reverse race, like let's have, if, when we say racism, anti-Black racism is, I think, manifests itself in, so, in such a different way than let's say like some other kind of racism that because because of the deep historical roots in this country right i'm talking about i'm not talking about the world i'm talking about this country right um and so and so i think like having that conversation about diversity without specific historical and understanding it just i just feel like it just derails the whole conversation right like and then people are like what about this thing what about this other thing i'm like you know and so same, I can say the same thing about like, let's say people with disabilities, for example, right, like, like if we understand the historical context and the struggle and, you know, I, I mean, we can we can go on and on like um, same thing, same thing with the LGBTQ plus movement, right? Like we have to look at his specific groups and the historical context of what it, what diversity and equity means for that group of people if we just start talking about diversity like it's some sort of like variety why don't we have this group why only why do we only have one of this group why do we only have two of this you know then it just becomes a conversation uh, that's not rooted in why we are talking about diversity in the first place um right and so and I, and i feel like that's that's happening right now in the tech industry right like in, in, instead of like in, in in spite of how much talk there is about diversity there's like I can't tell, I mean, Rachel Thomas has this great writing about how diversity hurting, uh, branding hurts diversity. Um, and I, I think that's, um, it's a great reading material in my opinion. Like, so, and I, and my, my experience has been like that, right? Like diversity branding is hurting diversity because, um, now everybody's aware that there's something called diversity that we all have to be thinking about, right? Like I, I think very few people in the tech industry have not heard the word diversity, but then now there's like a either a backlash or a different understanding of what diversity is because we don't have this education of what exactly is uh, people are enduring in the, in the US, right? And so somehow I, I just don't know, I don't know how to, what to do, but like I, I think we we need to have this understanding of what the reality is for different groups of people like and people need to be educated and the second thing i think that is difficult that i have i've seen um people don't want to have confrontations they don't want to um feel uncomfortable they don't and like i mean i can't tell you how many times i've been told i should communicate differently or i shouldn't you know be so public about what i'm saying or i should try this avenue first i should try you know whatever you can't tell me that and then expect and then say you care about diversity and expect to have any sort of change, right? Um, Sita uh, uh, penga I, 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 I don't know if you if you if you know her. She's um, a, so, a social scientist, and um, uh, she's based out of London right now. But like we were in, in a workshop together, and one thing she and she uh, she collaborates with our people on this project called Our Data Bodies. I really like this project. Um, I, I think you should check it out. And she talks about how there's a lot of anger and that anger needs to be expressed in order to have a shared language and a shared understanding and a shared reality. But what happens right now is that anger cannot be expressed at all. It's like someone is, you know, let's say someone is shooting you and and you scream because someone is shooting you and people are criticizing the way in which you're screaming and, and but like, but they're not really criticizing the fact that someone is shooting you. You're like, how are you, you know, someone is like literally shooting me and you are criticizing the way in which I'm reacting to it. Right. Like that's what's happening right now. So if we don't address that equity, the inclusion part, how do people feel once they're in these spaces? I just can't imagine. I don't, I don't know what how we can um, figure out the, the other parts.
1: Yeah, thank you for being so authentic with your experience, by the way. I think this is really important always for people, our listeners especially, to hear um, what, what these experiences are like, especially those who are probably experiencing similar things, whether it's in industry or academia. And Dylan and I are, are PhD students, so we're pretty uh, deeply situated in academia right now. And I know a lot of academics, they talk about representation in the tech industry. And we use this term, the tech industry a lot, but um, you're uniquely situated in the tech industry right now and you're working in industry and you have a background in academia so I'm wondering if you see these issues of diversity and representation any differently in industry than you do in academia and what people's uh, and companies and organizations approaches are for representation in the tech industry.
2: <laughs> you know um, I, I can be a little positive for a second before I get back to my usual <laughs> kind of complaint, but but I, I I um the 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 improvement at least I've seen for me is in my little small island right like in our team, um I think we're really we're like collecting people who were at the verge of leaving the tech industry or something like that you know that's sort of what um what we're doing in our team and that's because my manager has sort of allowed he's he's provided me cover like so many times people would tell him to like tell me to shut up or something or whatever like so me just this or that um but for me to get to a place like that with him it took us again a lot it was very emotionally difficult um he did not understand or he would get defensive and I would like you know I would talk to him and my some of my allies like this guy Sergio um at Google. He's great. He set up like monthly meetings with my manager to like talk to him, to educate him, you know? I mean, that's a, that's a great ally. That's the kind of stuff you should do. Yeah. And, and, um, and, uh, like it was just, I almost quit so many times. I mean, the number of times I said I quit was like, you know, I think, I think they would not, uh, they just, I mean, he is genuinely surprised that I'm here, like more than you know a year and a half later, I'm still here. Um, but we had to, that's what I mean, like, if, if he was not willing to go through that, um, we wouldn't have gotten to a shared understanding, a shared reality. Um, so I can't see how any of these diversity initiatives or anything can work if people like him. So if people like him at the leadership level, I mean, they we should target the leaders because that's really where it is. Like you can't, a lot of people target the bottom. Like, let's bring people in, let's do this, let's do that. What we should target is the leaders. Like if, if the leaders change, then they have a lot of power to change other things, right? To provide cover, to provide protection, to change things, to provide the, uh, to change the direction. If the leaders don't change, it does not matter what you're doing. Like, I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's there, the grassroots movements can make the leaders change, but otherwise, if you have leadership that doesn't value certain um, ideas, that doesn't value what you bring to the table, who who doesn't value like diversity, inclusion and equity, I don't see how anything is gonna change we don't have accountability like if, if people are not held accountable um for the things they do there's I just don't understand how things um can change so I don't know how this accountability can come like honestly like can the congressional black caucus do something or I don't know like because if there's no accountability I have no idea how we can change things um in terms of industry and academia oh man I just feel oh so that's just my situation right now um I felt like I had a lot more i have uh, so I was actually thinking about going to academia like um uh and I thought like I would have more autonomy there right um because I would you know do my own thing, I wouldn't have to deal with this and that I like um but then people were telling me there's so much politics there, and you know hiring a new faculty member like you know you have so many people have to agree, and like some of them have been there forever, and so convincing everybody that this one thing is important. Um uh, and then so so, whereas like right now, I think I have a little bit more and of an easier time to make a little a small change in my own team, right, in my own little team. Uh, perhaps in academia, you can do that with the students you recruit too, right? But if the PhD students, the pool of PhD students you have you admit to your school is already like, you know, <laughs> zero diversity, and then the pool of students you have, to recruit as a professor is, is also like zero diversity, right? And so, and then how do you convince the entire department that you need more, di- you know, I don't know. And, and one thing I would say is that I think people don't realize that a lot of times people talk about academia versus industry as if they're like completely separate things. But I see the same people moving around. Like, I mean, once I, I see professors going to industry, um, people in industry going back to academia, collaborations, like visiting researchers, this, that, uh, people writing grants together. Um, I feel like it's the same people, basically. It's the same people in both places. Like, um, it's people's, you know, our friends, their colleagues. And so I think this this perceived separation between academia and, and industry it's not that big, in my opinion. It's the same people with the same ideas, kind of, you know, going back and forth between the, the the two things, right? The same, you know, the same group of people, basically, in my opinion, run both industry and academia. You know, it's the same colleagues, the same friends, and the same group of people are shut out of both opportunities. So um, I don't think we should think there is too much of a separation between industry and academia. But um, I, yeah, but I, I, I can, I, I just feel, for me, I think. There's the same battles in both. Like, I honestly don't see um, that huge of a difference, except I guess in industry, I have a little bit of more power to hire someone if I, you know, if I can convince my manager, right? Like, and then who can convince his manager? Whereas in academia, I feel like I have to convince so many more people to recruit this one student or whatever. And so honestly, I see... Personally, I see academia changing so slowly because they're so conservative, right? When I'm visiting schools, I remember I visited M- MIT, and students were telling me like they could not find advisors to like work on the kinds of things we're you know we're talking about, and like they started reading groups and stuff, but like people are not taking it seriously, like you know I am, I I just feel like academia moves so um slowly on this, and I. I, I don't know when uh something is gonna change um in, in academia, right? Um so I don't know. Um that was that was sort of my my thinking.
1: And Timna, as we near the end of this interview, um as you probably expected, you're on a podcast called the Radical AI Podcast. So we have to ask <laughs> you uh two questions. The first one is how do you define the word radical? What does that word mean to you? And do you situate yourself, your story, and your research in that definition? If you do, how?
2: That's interesting. Um, hmm. how, do I, uh, how do I define the word radical? Um, man, transform some, something that's transformative, maybe? Um, Um, but, but, you know, a lot of times I feel like what we consider radical, um, it happened somewhere different or it happened in a different community or it happened in the past sometime, but we just didn't know about it or whatever. And so now we're, we're thinking of it as radical, right? Like, um, I don't know how to explain it. Like, I, I think that like, you know, a practice that we think is radical many times, is not a new practice. It it just, you know, it just happens that maybe we don't know the historical context under which this practice happened before and wasn't considered radical by certain groups of people. Um, And so we're trying to bring it into, uh, we're trying to practice it now. Um, And so then people might think it's radical, right? Like people thought it was, you know, like for example, (laughs) just one simple example I wanna give is, You know, people think it's radical for me to have my hair the way it is in the sense that literally for me to comb my hair and um, not do anything else and for it to grow out of my head the way it is and have an Afro, because that's literally how my hair grows out of my head. People think is some people, some people say that's radical Because I'm not straightening my hair, I'm not doing, you know, there's, because there's been politics around black women's hair forever, right? And like, so it's supposed to be uh, unkempt if it's not an effort, supposed to be like this, but just, just me wearing my hair as is people, you know, some people would consider it radical or braiding it or whatever. But, but I mean, but that's, that's only the case because we've been in the past X number of years kind of brainwashed into thinking for some reason for me it's crazy that people think you know that that like that me having just my hair as is like growing out of my head is the thing that's radical right so that's what I mean sometimes it's you know something that is um that we consider radical or transformative or different or an idea that you know um Is just so different or out out of the ordinary is something that's just so ordinary for some groups of people or has been so ordinary for a very long time. Um, So, so for me, honestly, like many times radical does not mean like different, you know, so different or, uh, or extraordinary. It just means bringing back like ideas that, you know, things that are, that are actually very ordinary and for some reason we have been brainwashed to think that they're not. Um, so, so maybe, maybe that's kind of, that's what I would say about that.
0: So as we uh, as we close normally we ask our guests if they have a piece of advice uh, for students who are beginning their work their PhD work or working in this field and I actually want to want to bring a twist to that question um, so we started out uh, this interview with you talking about how much you've changed and uh, grown in the last you know since 2012 um, in your journey and uh, thinking about where you might be you know in, in eight years or in six years. And I'm wondering if there's one piece of wisdom that you're sitting with right now that you want yourself to remember in eight years.
2: Um, I think um, one is to allow people to evolve. Um, sometimes we, I mean, some people say in the era of Twitter and stuff, we're too harsh. You know, someone says something ten years late, ten years ago, and we don't forgive. Like we we don't forgive them. We don't you know, human beings have to be allowed to evolve, right? I, I get new information, I should change my ideas. I, I, otherwise, you know, I shouldn't be like, sometimes people say, you know, someone flip flops or something, but I mean, it depends, right? But if if I have new information and I talk to new people, somehow I should update my belief about the world, right? So one example is that, for example, I remember in 2012, I thought drones were fine, Like, I I really thought I would argue with my friends and stuff. I'm like, so what else are you going to do and all that? And right now, I think drones are like some of the worst things that have, you know, happened, right? I mean, and I don't know what I'll think, you know, 10 years later after talking to more people and and more, you know, reading more or whatever. And so we have to allow people to, you know, or sometimes we say, oh, so-and-so, you know, campaigned for this person, you know, 50 years ago or something. I mean... We have to, to a certain extent, I mean, we have to allow people to evolve, like we, we, you know, otherwise we can't, we can't go get anywhere. And I think this, I love, you know, Sabelo just had this, um, uh, this interview uh, that I, that I, I, I shared on Twitter about, you know, restorative justice and Ubuntu and like diff- different kind of ways of having justice, right? For example, how people approached it in the Rwandan genocide for and apartheid versus. Um, um you know the holocaust for example he was talking about that right so so that's that's what i'd say we just have to allow people to evolve and have different ideas um and different interests and different beliefs about the world
0: and for our listeners who want to find out more about you and your work and your research uh, is there a place that you would like to direct them
2: um let's see i haven't been keeping everything up to date so <laughs> so we can go to um to blackandai.org um, for people who want to um, or, or request to join as allies or as um, members of the uh, Black and AI community. Um, we can um, follow me on Twitter. I just write all sorts of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and share things I'm interested in. Um, and the ethical AI team. Um, M- Meg Mitchell is my colleague for the ethical AI team. I'll also follow her on Twitter. We I don't know if we have we don't you know we're trying to have like a public facing um a website for our ethical AI team, and so we're we're gonna work on that soon. Um, but, and also, you know, my, uh, my friend Julani Nelson runs a nonprofit called AdisCoder Ad with that I'm involved in too. And so check that out, um, and, and support. Like people can also always donate to like Black Nan, Ad DisCoder and things like that. So yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, Timnit, thank you so much for joining us today and for a wonderful conversation.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: We, again, want to thank Dr. Timnit Gebru for a wonderful conversation today. And again, especially as uh, we're releasing this episode right now with so much going on in our world uh, that is directly tied into everything that Timnit brought up, right? The, the anger, the fear, the uh, unfairness, um, the issues of representation, it's I've been thinking a lot about this conversation actually in in the past few weeks since we recorded it um, and what my role is as a a white person, specifically a white person who is co-hosting a podcast about radical issues, including, you know, race and, and gender and trying to, you know, lift up folks um, and what, what that means. Like, what does it really mean to be radical while still controlling the means of privilege and controlling the conversation? And Jess, you and I have talked about this a little bit. Like, it's it's there's a certain level of power, right, in us being able to figure out what questions to ask. Um, and we're grateful to be doing this work because you know it's better than the alternative, which might just be, you know, to go back to the well of lifting up the status quo of the same, you know, straight white men who are, you know, on most panels right now. Um, And so we like to think that we're a good alternative, but issues of representation play out, you know, in media all the time. And to a certain degree, we are part of that media. So this is all to say that um, Timnit's reflections make me really sit back and, um, ask some hard questions about, you know, what, what are we doing here in mm. this project?
1: Wow. <laughs> yeah. I think there's definitely an elephant in the room and that elephant is privilege, especially for a podcast. Like you said, we're two well-meaning white folks who talk about a lot of things that we have never personally experienced, at least probably, I'm assuming, that you've never experienced um, issues of racism and um, maybe even issues of sexism. And these are things that we unpack quite a bit in our conversations. And uh, something that Timnit said that really stuck with me quite a bit was this idea of reality and that we all live a different reality. Even if we are experiencing the same thing on the outside, our inside reality is quite a bit different. And it's especially different for people who are marginalized. Um, and that's something that maybe I've experienced to a certain extent in some circles, but more commonly, I probably have not experienced uh, and most definitely haven't experienced at the levels that many people have in this country and so this conversation is so fitting for right now when people need to come together who have these different lived experiences and who are living in these different realities to be there for each other and to empathize with each other even though there's no way that we can know what each other has been through
0: yeah and you you know <laughs> you know my podcast style i uh, i'm all about appropriate vulnerability and um and like pulling pulling back the curtain right because i think it's i i think it's important to to model that as anyone who's in in public right is uh, should, should i think should model that um that appropriate vulnerability and this has been one of the most uh we've t- we've had so many t- different takes um of like our intro and outro <laughs> of this particular, uh, particular episode, because it, there's no, there's no perfect thing to say, right? There's no perfect thing that we can say or that we can do. Like we can try to do the work. We can try to be part of the people doing the work. Uh, we can try to be allies. We can try to be more than allies. Uh, we can lose track of what language she even use about allyship. Um, and, you know, we could we can create a podcast in which we talk about these issues, but, you know, we we don't have we don't have any solutions, although we would want we so badly want to have um, solutions <laughs> to to these kind of things. And, you know, we were even talking as we were doing the intro, like I came up with the idea to do like a, a moment of silence. But then, like, it just feels like such bullshit to have a moment of silence while, like, you know, last night I stood, you know, outside just. As part of a, a crowd rioting, and it's like silence doesn't seem to be the answer. And at the same time, there needs to be so much time for mourning and for grief, and then also time for anger and for noise. And you know, how do you make how do you make room for all of that? And how do you make room for all of that during an hour long podcast? <laughs> you know, and, and the answer is <laughs> probably over an hour. At this probably point. over an hour, and you, you can't you, you can't do it. And so it's just like this this perfect imperfection of trying your best to make sense of it all um, and to like name, name what, where you're coming from and, and just trying to be intentional at the very least of, of what we're doing. And so I think that that's like kind of my hope for for this episode is that um, we decenter our voices a little bit in our experiences. And uh, this can be a, a space and part of the overall movement out in the world right now To at the very least talk about some really difficult things to talk about and have some really difficult conversations about racism, about violence, uh, about systematic oppression.
1: Yeah. And that was. One of the main reasons why we made this podcast in the first place was because we wanted to bring up those radical and difficult conversations that people are just too scared to talk about. And even Timnit brought up at one point in this interview that people tell her she has hashtag communication difficulties, but really she's just communicating difficult things that people aren't ready or don't want to hear. And maybe that's all we're doing right now. We're not necessarily offering Solutions to, or we're not necessarily offering solutions or answers to problems that we don't know enough about, but we're bringing them up and hopefully starting a better dialogue between ourselves, people in industry, people in the academy, and honestly, everyone.
0: And and you know, to a certain degree, that's where that's where change happens is, you know, through awareness, through education, and then through conversation. Um, so, you know, for, for listeners out there, thank you for being part of this, uh, journey with us. Uh, we want to state clearly, uh, that we stand with black lives matter. We stand with data for black lives. We stand with black in AI, um, and similar groups. Um, and we are here both to create space and then also to listen, um, So I guess it feels weird to do a standard exit (laughs) and outro for this episode, but we have to outro at some point. Uh, So for more information on today's show, please visit
1: the episode page at RadicalAI.org. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at radicalaipod. Pod. And as always... Stay Radical.